Good morning, Connection Point. How are we doing? Well, I am glad you're doing good. My wife is doing well. Kelly's doing well. The rest of you I will pray for very quickly. Man. All right. Uh, well, welcome to Connection Point Church. Uh, that is a sweet shirt, John. I just noticed that. Is that Caleb Fisher all over your shirt? Wow. All right. That is love. That's brotherly love right there. No, no bet loss there. You just did that, right? Um, if you're new to Connection Point Church, welcome. My name is Joel Halpin. I'm the pastor of this church. Uh, very excited that you're here. One of the things that uh, I want you to know about our church is that we view this church as a family. We really view ourselves as family members, and so uh, we try to lead that way. We try to um, guide this church that way. Um, if you want to follow along with the sermon notes today, you can find those online. You can go on your phone. You have permission to get on your phone. You have permission real quick to check your fantasy football. You have real quick, get that done, and then go to connectionpoint.life. If you go to connectionpoint.life, you'll find a, a little card. They're kind of, it's, it's a mobile site. You can go to sermon notes. You'll be able to find uh, the scriptures for today. Um, when I was... In, I think it was fifth grade, I was 10 years old, uh, I got to do something that was very exciting. For the first time ever, 10-year-old Joel got to go to a PG-13 movie without my parents. In fact, I remember uh, the invitation. I was like, there's no way my parents are going to let me go to this movie. The movie was Critters. Don't judge, okay? But it was just, God, that's all I know. It was... Uh, it was at a theater near my house, and my friend Blake had invited me, so we go to this movie theater. My mom buys the tickets, and then she gets in her car and drives home, which was just around the block. But I'm sitting in this theater watching this PG-13 movie with my friend who invited me to go. I'm excited. And about probably 30 minutes into this film, the manager of the theater comes, and he taps us on the shoulder, and then he pulls us out of the theater, and he starts yelling at us. At me and Blake, two 10-year-olds, two fifth graders, and trying to figure out what's going on, and he is just letting us have it. And he told, he says, we know what you've been doing in the theater. We had been watching this fantastic movie. And so we're, we're watching, we're like, what are you talking about? And he says, we know you were throwing popcorn, you've been yelling things, and we know that there's a girl up there that's got gum in her hair, and you put that gum in her hair. You guys have to leave. And I'm sitting there like, what are you talking about? I've been, Blake's been next to me the whole time. And then I see two girls from our school walking by. One of them has gum in her hair, and she looks at us. They're, they're real solemn, and she looks at us, and she just kind of smiles. And then she walks by. And uh, they call my parents. My parents come get, and the whole time I'm trying to explain, I have no idea. This is a total lie. There's nothing. And the louder and the more of a case I made for myself, it seemed like they just pointed fingers and I'm like, yeah, that's what you would say if you did it. And, and I, I just kept digging a hole trying to explain that is not true. Here is the truth. Thankfully, my mom, she believed in me, but I, I, I have that. I still haven't seen the end of Critters, by the way. So if you've seen it, don't ruin it for me, okay? Uh, but there was a Critters 2, so I assume the Critters won the first one. Now, I say all that because the topic that we've been going through is a lot like that sometimes. There is a lot of bad information about this book, about the Bible, about how it came, if it's real, is it fictional, what, how it came to be. And the people with the truth cannot yell loud enough because... 
most people with platforms right now, most of the platforms that are speaking to this issue, and you may not even realize that there are, but there are platforms speaking to this issue, are so loud and have such a sense of authority that it can be very, very hard for the truth to actually come out. Um, when I was in seminary, it was alarming to me, the misinformation, and a book came out called The Da Vinci Code. If you've read The Da Vinci Code, it's about 20 years old or something like that. I read it. I liked the book, by the way. It was a fun book. But one of the things about The Da Vinci Code is it said a lot of things about the Bible. And back in the day, a book would come out, and then it had a lot of crazy ideas. They would just write more books about it, right? And so there are there's one Da Vinci Code, but there's a lot of books about why the Da Vinci Code is historically inaccurate, okay? The problem is now we live in a time in which ideas just spread like wildfire. And so, before I even get into this message, I want to just urge this church, get your information from a source. Anytime somebody comes at you with information, ask for a source, preferably one that has a binding and is not a web page, okay? It is not a tweet, okay? And so, I say all that because this is what the Da Vinci Code said. This is uh, um, just lines from, I'm going to quote directly. It says, Constantine, this is talking about the formation of the Bible. And we've been going through this series, uh, let me reset, we've been going through a series on uh, how the Bible came to be. Last week we looked at who wrote the Bible. And the two main things we came away with is that the people that wrote the Bible or um, wrote it, especially the New Testament, within the first by the year 100, so within the first 70 years after Jesus uh, lived a life, died on a cross, and rose from the dead, within 70 years we know that the books had been written, okay? And we have good traditions that tell us who wrote them, okay? And so within, between the, the entire New Testament was written between 45 A.D. and 100 A.D., and virtually Every scholar will agree with that. Everyone who writes books on this issue would say, yes, that is accurate. But the second problem we run into is not who wrote them, but it's how was it gathered together. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, this is what the Da Vinci Code said. It said, Constantine needed to strengthen the new Christian tradition. Constantine was an emperor of Rome. Needed to strengthen the new Christian tradition. And so he held a famous ecumenical a gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. Constantine collated an entirely new Bible at the Council of Nicaea, containing only books that speak of Jesus as divine. All the books that portrayed him as human were burned. And so one of the things that the Da Vinci Code, if you've read it, it makes the claim that Jesus was never meant to be portrayed as divine, but that the church in a conspiracy at the Council of Nicaea, because uh, of the movement of Constantine and the, to assimilate power. Constantine wanted to, to somehow get the reins, so he chose certain books to be in the Bible as a means of control, as a means to squash out some feminist movements, and as just a means to control people politically. Okay, and there's a lot of problems we're going to get into this, but then for me, as the internet, uh, the rise of the information, I begin to see this more and more in situations in which we see people making claims that are not refuted. And so my whole goal of this series is that at least in this church, us hundred people are going to be able to refute and to know this is why I can trust my Bible. Now, uh, I'm going to show you a clip in just a second here from 
a podcast from Joe Rogan, and Joe Rogan is a uh, famous comedian. He's, I like Joe Rogan, so this isn't a bash Joe Rogan, okay? Um, I love the UFC, and he does UFC stuff, and so I want to say all that. Um, but I want to show you a clip just because his podcast, by the way, gets about 30 million downloads uh, per podcast. 30 million. That's more than people watching CNN, okay? So if you think this really isn't a big problem, I want to let you know millions of people are, are engaging in debates or at least hearing people debate about this topic. And this one's from several years ago, uh, and it's edited by Joey in a fine fashion because we had to cut out a ton of F-bombs, okay? And so if it's jumping, no content was cut out, but uh, this is PG for church. Uh, let's go ahead and watch this clip. Like, what do you say? Do you think Jesus came back from the dead? What, what do you think? Do you think someone walked on water? Do you believe in the literal translation? Yeah. Are you an Old Testament guy or a New Testament guy? Mm. Well, the New Testament. No, well, the New Testament was made by Constantine. Mm. He didn't even believe it. He was, he was, he was, he was, he became a Christian on his deathbed. Like, that's when he became a Christian. Like, all these people that are, like, really into the New Testament. Mm. It was created by a bishop and an emperor. That's a fact. That's, like, established religious fact. Like, everyone knows where it came from. And not only that, it was written hundreds of years after the death of Jesus. So what are you talking about? Because if you're talking about the old stuff, you got to go deep. What, go to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Go to the, the most ridiculous aspects of that. And tell me, you basing your life on that? Because that's even more preposterous. They found them in clay pots in Qumran, written on animal skins. These people thought the world was flat and the sun was 17 miles away. And we're going <laughs> to... They did. They really did. And we're going to, we're going to, this is how we're going to live our lives. Mm. This is it. This is all the facts we need. It's all the facts we need. This is how the Bible was. It's a fact. And he says that several times. It's a fact. And in fact, it's aggressive to the point where you almost feel foolish for, for, for thinking, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize all of this. Um, by the way, I'm not going to be able to hit every single thing that he said, uh, but I do want to point out just off the top. Well, I am going to try to address it all, but real quick, I just want to hit a couple of things. Um, the Dead Sea Scroll has nothing to do with the New Testament. The Dead Sea Scroll is the Old Testament. He was entirely wrong on that, okay? The Dead Sea Scroll is about uh, the Old Testament. It was written before uh, Jesus ever lived, all the books from it. They were collected um, in Qumran. He got that right. They were written and found in clay jars because that's where you stored your scrolls. And uh, they were written on animal skins because everything was written on animal skins. And so all that is true. Uh, he makes a claim that you shouldn't believe it because they believe the sun was 17 miles from the earth. Uh, everybody in the world at the time believed that. That's the, that was scientific, though. There were calculations that the Greeks had done to say that. And no one in the world believed that the earth was flat, especially in this area at the time. And so all of those things that were just thrown out there about Qumran that had nothing to do with the New Testament, but were presented as, why would you ever believe that? I just want to point out, None of that was true. None of that, by anyone's standards, would be considered true. But he makes some other claims. He says the, the Bible was written by Constantine hundreds of years after it was written. Now, in some way, shape, or form, that is a narrative that has flowed and flowed and flowed, especially over the, my uh, lifetime, the last 20 years for sure. I hear this more and more from people and some even Christians will throw in this idea that, that the Roman Empire and Constantine formed the Bible. And so what I want to do today is I want to take us through a history lesson. I'm going to try to make it as clear and concise and listenable as possible. But I want to, at least for us, you be able to tell a story of, you know what, 
there's actually a different idea that you should follow, and that is, let's just go to the context of Jesus, okay? Jesus was walking around, and Jesus would teach in a place called a synagogue, okay? In fact, I got a picture of me and John Williams in a synagogue, uh, and this is in the Herodium. There's John on the very end in his Texas Longhorn hat. You see him? Uh, He's this big. And we would sit in these synagogues, and a synagogue is simply a place. It means gathering, okay? It's just, in fact, the word church, ecclesia, uh, basically has come to mean gathering. That's what it meant when they used the word in the New Testament, was gathering. And so it's basically a Jewish church. That's what the word means. Jesus would preach in, anyone want to take a guess? Synagogues. This is what he did, okay? He would go to synagogues, and in fact, in Luke 14, we have it says, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. It was his, was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood to read. And so we know a few things. We know that Jesus would preach in the synagogue. He would preach, go to church, and he would preach there, and he would read the scriptures. That was one of the main things they did in the, on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. Now, why does this matter? Because for the first few, uh, few years of Christianity, people just did what Jesus did. The, Jew, the church, the church leaders, which were the apostles, the disciples, would simply go to the synagogues and they would preach. In fact, Christianity was not uh, a separate religion. It was part of Judaism. So for the first few years of the church, Christianity took place in a synagogue. It was, it, was part of the church, it was part of the Jewish faith. It was just kind of an offshoot. And then the reason this is important is because when it divides, which is roughly, some would put it at Antioch, it's about, uh, at the most, 10 years after Jesus uh, died on a cross, Christianity becomes its own religion. And this is illegal. You cannot start new religions in Rome, okay? You can have old, old religions, but you cannot start new ones, and this is a big deal because the context of the formation of the Bible takes place when it is illegal to be a Christ follower, and we need to understand the context very, very good. If you are in college, in college I, was, uh, I really was challenged by this. And so that, for, that one single point is a big deal, that it was illegal. And so most of it would still happen as best they could as a part of Judaism. And we know what Judaism, what, what a synagogue meeting would look like. Um, they would read Scripture, the Old Testament Hebrew Tanakh. They would read that. And then they would have somebody preach about it or or say some words about it, usually from the oral tradition. And then they would pray. Very simple service. Uh, They probably had coffee and all that stuff, I'm sure. But what we know, what people have written down is that was a, a church service. They might sing songs, but it was reading the scriptures, and it was preaching, and then it was prayer. Now, when we read the New Testament, there are some hints that this is still going on. The way that the early church was operating was just like the synagogue worship, okay? Uh, Colossians 4, 15 and 16. This is a letter written by Paul to the church in Colossae, okay? He's writing to a church, and one of the things he says to them is, Give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea. Laodicea is a, another church location. It's another location not far, so they're neighbors, so it's... Uh, Hey, when you go to that church, give them my greetings. And he says this, And to Nympha and the church in her house, so she's a woman, and when the, this letter has been read among you, 
have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that also that you read the letter from Laodicea. And so one of the things in the early church what they would do is they would not only read the Old Testament scriptures, the, you know, Genesis, Exodus, that stuff, but they would also have these letters of Paul that he had, from Paul that he had written, and they would read those letters, and then they might preach on those. And so Paul tells us uh, with Colossians, hey, read this letter to the church, and then give it to some of the other churches. Let them read this. This is how we're going to, to study the Word, and this is how we're going to know how to do what to do in church, is we're going to read some of Paul's letters. Now, there's two, church, so there's two letters here, by the way, that we know we're circulating. There's the letter to Laodiceans, uh, which we do not have in our Bible, and, and put a pen in it. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. And then there's this letter of the, the Colossians, which was preserved, and they held on to this letter, and they circulated it, they copied it, and the early church, they had this letter and some of Paul's letters, okay? Now, Peter, when he writes, this is what Peter says. Um, he says, this is Second Peter, I believe, 3.15. Uh, yeah, good, I got it right. Um, and count the patience of the Lord art as our salvation, just as your beloved, your beloved brother Paul also wrote according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letter when he speaks um, of them in these matters. These are some things that are hard to understand. So listen, if you read Paul's letters, how many of you have ever read Romans and said, this is hard to understand? Good news. The number one disciple, Peter, said, hey, Paul's letter is pretty hard to understand. He says, there are ignorant and unstable people who are twisting this to their own destruction. And then he says this comment, as they do other scriptures. And Peter, who is the number one guy in the church, elevates in this statement, in this statement in your Bible, he actually says, Paul's letters are just like scripture. He elevates them. And one of the reasons he says this is you've got to understand what's working, or what's happening is they're actually using Paul's letters as scripture. So in the very early church, even before, uh, um, Peter probably wrote this before 70 AD. So before 70 AD, we already know Paul's writing letters to churches that are being used as scriptures, okay? That's a big deal to understand in the formation of the Bible, of how, what, what is going on in worship. It's illegal, but yet when they have it, they, if they have these letters of Paul, they'll pull them out. It's a house church, and so if you're at a house church, they'll go in, you know, to their secret compartment or whatever. They'll pull out a letter from Paul, and they might use that as scripture in the early church, and that is how it goes for about the first hundred years of the church. It's underground, and they're hiding it, and they're basically saying, hey, it, um, when you come to our church, this, we're gonna, it's going to be like a synagogue meeting, except for we're going to use some of these letters that these apostles have been given to us. And that's what they did. In fact, um, we have some, some accounts. There's a Roman governor in Sicily, and he finds a, a person that is accused of following Christianity. And the evidence against this man is that he is found with a copy of Luke, and a, or part of Luke, and, a, and, a, and part of Matthew. And so he's made to stand in front of the, the governor, and he's made to read these aloud. This is in the first century. He's made to, to read these aloud. He reads from the gospel of uh, Luke, and he is immediately sentenced to execution. He is killed for possessing these books. And so the, the culture of the early church is not hey, let's put all these books out. Let's, we've got all these books. The culture of the early church is, 
man, we have these precious letters that we elevate to the same part of scriptures, and they're writing them, they're copying at the risk of their life, and they're handing them out to all these different house churches. And all of the house churches are in houses. They are hidden. There is not a first Baptist yet. There is not a first Christian. There is nothing because you do not put a sign on your church. And so, up until 150 or so, everything's hush-hush. And if you have letters, whatever letters you have from Paul, whatever you've been able to collect, if you are near a big city, you could probably go in and find several letters. You might have five or six letters of Paul. You might have part of the Gospel of Luke that you were able to memorize on the way over and translate over time. You might have, uh, have gone and gotten an actual copy of the, the Gospel of Matthew. And, and for the first hundred years of the church, that's how they operated. But then something interesting happens. There's a man named Marcion, and he's one of the first heretics. He's one of the first people that gets, that's, that's a modern-day uh, picture of, of Marcion. He came and he did something very interesting. He made the claim that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. By the way, this heresy still exists and is rampant. But he said, basically, if you, uh, if you know anything about Jesus, it's obvious that a new God is coming. In fact, the old God was an evil God, and Jesus is the good God. And he, he made this claim, and, and one of the things that Marcion did is he joined the church in, uh, in Rome. And he gave them 200,000 bucks, basically. And he began to preach and start churches, and he started a ton of churches. He started churches everywhere, and he was pretty bold about it, okay? And in fact, he's one of the first people that gets excommunicated, and by excommunicated, all that means is that the church in Rome says, hey, by the way, you're not a member here. We don't believe what you believe. You cannot teach in our authority anymore, and they gave him back his $200,000. But what Marcion did that was unique is he created a list called a cannon. Now, the word cannon is not a big gun that you shoot. Cannon with one N. It's basically, it means standard or rule. But Marcion, this heretic, created a list of books that you could, that were official Marcion text. So if you went to a church that Marcion started, they would have an actual list of this is what you can read and this is what you cannot read. And it's important because if you read all of the, the New Testament, you would not get what Marcion says. So he limits what you can read. Now, he also adds in two extra books. He adds in uh, Paul's epistle to the Alexandrians, and he adds in one Paul's epistle to the Laodiceans. And so, it's interesting. He comes across and he says, hey, I've got the official list of books that you can have, okay? This is all about 150 AD. You're staying with me. This is good. We're halfway through, though. Y'all, this is going to be quick if we keep this up. That's good. Now, Another interesting thing that happens, another heretic comes and, and uh, comes in, and he starts saying some, his name is Montanus, and Montanus comes in, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. He comes in, he's actually got uh, some prophetesses, prophetai, I don't know how you would say that, with him, and they'll, they'll get real ecstatic, and they'll have these episodes where they'll just fall on the ground, and they'll flail. Probably was a good time, but the interesting thing is, when they would come out of these trances, they would come away with new revelation. So you have one heretic that says, hey, this is a different God than the Old Testament, and so this is new. Here are the books you can use. And then you have this other heretic that starts spreading uh, an idea. And his idea is that the age of Jesus has ended and the age of the Holy Spirit has begun. 
It's a new revelation that no one has ever had before. And so if you're a little house church, and you're around there at the time, and you've got three letters of Paul, and maybe part of a gospel that you're using as scripture every single week, and all of a sudden, you've got this problem because people are talking about, well, you don't have the books Marcion says you have to have. And by the way, you don't know anything about this new revelation. And so there are some discussions that start getting had in the church. Two main questions drive forward. When does inspiration cease? In other words, when do we close the, 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 uh, the Bible? When do we say you can't have any more revelation? It's a good question if people are going to have revelations all the time. And they come up with a pretty good answer. They basically say when the last disciple died or the last apostle died, that no one else is going to be able to give scripture, okay? So the apostle or the disciple John dies around the year 100. He writes several uh, epistles, which are just letters, but he also wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote the uh, Apocalypse of John or Revelation. And so when Revelation ends, basically most of the churches say, hey, now that John, the last disciple is there, we're not going to have any new revelation. We had enough. Everything was complete. He ends revelation by saying, don't add anything to this. We're going to stop with John. And the next question they have to answer is, can we, what, what are the official books that we're going to use, that are okay to use? Because Marcion had thrown in two texts that no one had, the book of the Laodiceans, and the, or the letter to the Laodicea and the letter to the Alexandrians. And so each individual church begins to respond to this. It's not a big old council, but it's, you know, the church down the street. He comes out with a list of, hey, here's what we have. When you come to our church, and they would tell you, these are the books we have in our church. And then you go to the church down the street, and they would say, hey, here's the books we have. And, then, and, and they might be different from that last church, but here's what we're teaching from. Now, I'm going to show you a copy. This is called the, this is one of the earliest fragments we have of, uh, of one of these lists. And this is about 170 A.D. This is a direct response to these heresies that are coming out. Okay? And what this letter basically says is it says these are the, the books that this church expands or, or, or will preach from. And what's interesting is, it's all of the books of the New Testament except for Hebrews, James, 1st, and 2nd Peter, okay? So it lists all of the, of the books that this church is using except for four books that are in ours. And then it specifically says, we do not read from the book or the, the letter to the Laodiceans, and we do not read from the Alexandrians. In other words, he says, we are not from Marcion's church. And he says, those are fake, and we know that he wrote those, basically. He makes this accusation. We don't preach from these. And so he makes a list, but understand the list is just a response to what is going on. He just wants to know this. If you come to our church, this is what you're going to get. This is what we are doing. And he's going with the books that he has, okay? And so that's what happens for the next hundred years is you go to a church, and there's not this need to say every church has to use this scriptures. It's just the idea that if you're in a church, you now tell people what scriptures you are using so that they'll know. Are you Marcion? I, I want to stay away from some of these heresies, so I'm going to use these texts. Does that make sense so far? All right. Y'all half asleep or fully asleep? Okay. If you're half asleep, we're good. Um, 200, the year 250, okay, a man named Origen, a church father, 
he uh, writes a letter, and in this letter, he writes and he names all 27 books in our, um, in our New Testament. So in the year 250, we have a letter that has the New Testament as we know it. In other words, Origen says, here's the books we're using. And Origen was a church father. He was over a lot of churches. He says, in a, the majority of these churches were using these 27 books. This is what we're using. He didn't even name uh, a lot of the books you'll find in the Catholic, the Apocrypha, um, or deuterocanonical, which we're not going to get into today. But he lists just these, tw- he lists these 27 books, but he doesn't do it in a list form. He's just talking in a letter, and he names off. These are where we're getting all of what we know about Jesus in the year 250, okay? Now, another hundred years goes by, and this is how they're going. The church is basically, we know they're using these books, not because they've made a list yet, but simply because every time they talk about it, they only reference these 27 books, okay? So in the year 367, another church father, Athanasius, comes up and he says, you know what we ought to do is we ought to make a list. 300 years after the fact, by the way, that after these are written, he, we ought to make a list. And so he makes a list, and can you imagine what books he chose? He said, here are the books we use, and he gives us our 27 books that we have in our New Testament. He writes, he just, he lists them down. And then 20 years after Athanasius, uh, they, they say, why don't we have a council, an official council, and make this official. Let's rubber stamp this. And so they do this, and they say, these are the 27 books that we consider divine that are. The, and it's interesting because we know some of the reactions of the main people. St. Um, Augustine, or St. Augustine, if you do graph, if you have your graphs mode, okay? St. Augustine, who's a big deal. He is a church father. He, uh, he is writing a ton of stuff. He's a scholar. You know what the news, when they rubber stamp and say, these are the books of the New Testament, you know what his response is? Yeah, didn't we already know this? Yeah, of course. Yeah, we already knew this. The Pope's response to this is, I thought we settled this like years ago. In other words, they have this council and they make this declaration in the year 367 and then 393 is where the council happens uh, almost, you know, 400 years now after or 350 after the events. And the response is, yeah, of course, we've been reading these books in church for 300 years. This is not a big declaration. But if you'll notice, there's one person's name in this whole story that I did not mention. And that is Constantine. There's a reason Constantine had nothing to do with the development of the New Testament. Nothing. He, Constantine, he converted to Christianity. Joe Rogan said he did it on his deathbed. He was baptized on his deathbed. The evidence says that he converted much earlier. We know his mother converts much earlier because she goes to Israel and starts looking at everything saying, hey, that's where Jesus was. That's where Jesus was born. That's where he was buried. And everywhere she points is still in existence to this day. Constantine's mother was a believer. We know that. His, his extended families were all believers, okay? So the evidence is, is that he actually had at least begun uh, believing these things because he commissions a lot of works. But never the, nevertheless, when, uh, when he's alive, he does hold a council called the Council of Nicaea, to which uh, the Da Vinci Code and Joe Rogan both kind of reference as, hey, Constantine wrote the Bible. Now, just for a little more history, because you haven't got enough today. The Council of Nicaea was, why do you think, I'm just going to, this is, uh, this is an actual question you can answer if you know. Anybody want to take a guess about why they would hold the Council of Nicaea? 
Okay, good. No one's brave. That's good. Uh, I didn't think anyone would. It was because there was a heretic, okay? It was a response to, to a heretic. That's pretty much the reason they did everything, is they would clarify their message every time the message got crooked. So there's a, 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 a heretic that comes along, and he's basically saying Jesus isn't, uh, he was born from the Father, therefore he can't have always existed, and therefore Jesus isn't fully divine. He may be a little divine, but he's not fully divine. So Constantine actually calls some of the bishops together and says, hey, y'all need to decide how divine is Jesus. And so they have the Council of Nicaea not to, dis- not to talk about if he's divine, but what it means for Jesus to be divine. That's what the Council of Nicaea was about. You can actually go and read the Council of Nicaea, by the way. This isn't hidden information, okay? It's just that it's easier to listen to Joe Rogan. Now, what did the Council of Nicaea say about, what did the Council of Nicaea say about the books of the New Testament? absolutely nothing. Nothing. It never came up. And in fact, no one even thought it necessary, if you remember the dates, this Council of Nicaea happens in 325. No one even thinks it's necessary to list the books of the Bible until 30 years after the death of Constantine. Constantine has nothing to do. But yet, you'll have people scream, it's a fact. This is how it happened. I go through this entire history lesson for a reason. If you get nothing else out of this sermon, remember this big idea. There was never a group of old men with white beards that voted on the Bible. It just never happened. There was never an emperor who said, this is the Bible, you're going to abide by it. It just never happened. The only thing that happened was people made a list and all the churches said, yeah, we've been doing that for three years hundred years. Now, this is a big deal because many of us live and love the people around us and want them to know that there is hope in every situation. And so why does it matter? Why do we need to know? Why do we need to be able to tell this story at least a little bit? Because you came to this church today I assume, with some sort of baggage, some sort of hope that maybe there's hope in my situation. Maybe you've got a struggling marriage. Maybe you've got uh, issues with your kids. Maybe your job is, is not the job you thought you'd have. Maybe you've been struggling in your relationships. I don't know what it is, but we all bring something in. And no one comes to this church just for my words. And if you do, you will be sorely disappointed after a few sermons that I don't have the power, I don't have the knowledge to change your life. But what we do have, is a hope in a God that loves us so much that he showed us how strong he is, that he raised a man from the dead. And how can I proclaim to you, listen, no matter what your situation is, no matter what you're facing in life right now, God can fix it because he can raise the dead. He has the power inside of us. When we trust him, he puts that power inside of us. And it's not just my experience that I proclaim this, but it's because the people who saw it, wrote it down. And then they wanted their family and their friends to know it. So they wrote it down some more. And whenever they could, at the threat of their own life, they would give these copies out, and they would protect these copies, and they would read them as if they're scriptures, and they would proclaim that, listen, I saw a man 
put on a cross and murdered, and I saw him walking around three days later. And they would go to their graves proclaiming this. And when they write these letters, it's interesting. Peter writes his, when he's writing his letters, and when he's, he's, uh, his translator, John Mark, writes the Gospel of Mark. Peter's translator writes the Gospel of Mark. And we have information in these, these Gospels that Peter denied. And he, he's, being, he's openly admitting, you know what, I'm not the hero of this story. I failed, but Jesus rose. John, the best friend of Jesus, he writes a gospel and he makes clear in the story, when he died, I walked away. But something happened. My heart is that whenever you get to a point in your life where you think, how can I, how can I know there's hope? You understand that God inspired not just the writing of the Bible, but he also, the commission and the collecting of the Bible is an inspired act that many people risk their lives. I want to close this message by reading what most scholars, even non-Christian scholars, would say is the oldest part of your New Testament. It's a collection. Uh, it's probably a, was originally a hymn that traces within three years of Jesus rising from the dead. Within three years, Christians are reciting what I'm about to read for you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 11, verses 3 through 11 are considered to be the oldest part of the New Testament. Paul says this, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which I received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You could go find them if you wanted to, Paul is saying though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then also to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So whether it is I or they, we preached so that you would believe. My hope is as we leave today, as you hear this message, that you are encouraged to know your, the word of God that you have in your hand, you can trust it and understand believers gave their lives so that you would know the hope that lies within. Let's, let's pray. Lord, I hope that everyone here who has maybe ever doubted whether or not you exist, whether you're not you're there, maybe has, have heard some of the lies or some of the historical um, mistruths that are often spouted. And Lord, if anyone is here and has ever had their faith stomped on or shattered or somehow just dissolved because of these things, Lord, I pray that this message will be an encouragement to them. But Lord, most of all, I pray for those who 
have not yet found the hope that you provide. Those that right now, maybe in this community, are thinking to themselves, you know what, I've got problems that are beyond me, and I just wish there was someone, something that could help me in my worst days. Lord, I pray that we will be bold enough to let them know, hey, there is a God who loves you and loves you so much, he sent his son to pay every single penalty you have ever incurred. He loves you so much, he has shown his power to overcome death itself, and there is nothing in our lives that we don't have hope in because of the power of Christ in us. Lord, give us a boldness right now, no matter what we're facing in life, to know we are not alone. We have a risen Savior who is intervening in our world every single day so that we can proclaim the goodness of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.